Yeah, well, good morning once again. As we gather each Lord's Day, I find myself just in deep gratitude for the church. I'm thankful for the, the faithfulness, the fellowship, the friendship. Um, and I've been thinking about that much this week because it coincides with the message um, that we are looking at as we look at Colossians and continue on. This morning we have before us a picture of a particular church, the church in Colossae. A church of the New Testament era. Um, it offers itself really for public scrutiny, I would say, so that we can be both challenged and reassured by what we learn about it. So specifically this morning, I want to call your attention to the church's faithfulness, urging you to imprint on your mind the collaborative fidelity of the body of Christ. And so, as always, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. For the continuation of the message that I have called Three Degrees of Faithfulness in the Christian Life. And as always, those of you who are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. This morning, I'm going to read through verse 4 just for the sake of some things we're going to capture there. So Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints of, in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers, grace to you, and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all of the saints. You may be seated. Over 60 years ago, in his weekly address, his weekly sermon, Donald Gray Barnhouse tackled the question, what would the city look like if Satan was in control? Barnhouse was a Presbyterian minister in Philadelphia, and he'd been there or ministered there for 33 years. He was the, vo the pulpit voice of 10th Presbyterian Church. And on this day, when he addressed that question, he did so from the radio airwaves. And he speculated that if Satan controlled the city of Philadelphia where he was, that all the bars would be closed, pornography would be banished, and the pristine streets would be filled with smiling people and tidy pedestrians. There would be no swearing, and every church would be filled every Sunday. Every available pew would be filled and every available person would be at church. It would be clear to say that there would be no room at any church for even a single additional person. But then he says, but Christ would not be preached. Barnhouse was not sanctioning the work of Satan, or was he trying to, nor was he trying to suggest that Satan's rule would be better than Christ's rule. Rather, what he was trying to do was assert that any morality or any appearance of virtue or any good deed loses its value when it is separated from Christ. You may not agree with Barnhouse's speculation. Really, we don't know. But certainly, we could all agree that with that point that Christianity without Christ loses its form and morality without Christ loses its purposes. Without Christ, Christianity loses its purpose. 
Without Christ, morality loses its effect. And without Christ, kindness loses its goodness. When Christ is abandoned, so is any sense of purpose, any sense of reality, and any ambition, because it is from Christ that a person derives his or her own value, his own direction, and most importantly, his own justification. The call to faithfulness, then, is not merely for, our, for his well-being, but for our well-being. When we don't have Christ, we have nothing we need. And when we have Christ, we have everything we need. Such was the highlight of Paul and Timothy in verse 1. Just a couple of weeks ago, when we examined what I would say is the first degree or first level of faithfulness, we examined it on a, an individual level. Faithfulness is a personal virtue. An aspect of character that is really the responsibility of each and every single individual. None of us can be held accountable for the faithfulness of another, and others certainly can't be held accountable for our faithfulness. Yet while faithfulness is a personal attribute, genuine fidelity is also expressed corporately. Unique to God's plan and purposes is the centrality of the church, of the local church specific, specifically, the effectiveness of the church does not rise and fall on the ability of a single individual. The continuation of God's plan does not succeed or fail based on one person. Rather, God's perfect design, God's perfect plan, includes an imperfect church filled with imperfect people. It is through the function of the church that the gospel is proclaimed. It is through the exertion of the church that disciples are made. And it is through the form of the church that God is revealed. It is important that you hear what I'm not saying in that. I'm not saying that the church is responsible for the Spirit's work. I'm not saying that God is incapable of completing his plan without us or without the work of the church. Instead, I only mean to highlight this morning that God has ordained the church as a means by which he accomplishes his will. Through his written word, God has revealed both the form and the function of the church. And the faithfulness of the church is dependent then on the faithfulness of individuals. This morning we move from examining the faithfulness of individuals to examining the faithfulness of the church. Paul's epistle to the Colossians allows us to inspect the church at Colossae. And what it reveals is a body of believers who submitted to God's individual call with a corporate impact. And so I want you to note first, the call of faithfulness. It says quite simply, beginning there, to the saints. Personal faithfulness, I would say, is an expression of personal holiness. And Paul begins by addressing those in Colossae in the church as saints individuals who have been set apart for God's purposes. When used as a noun, like it is here, saint is an appropriate word. He uses it later in verse 4. But as an adjective, saint simply means holy. It's describing the people as holy. So to address these people as saints is to address their position before God, calling attention to the relationship that they maintain with him. The same title is given to those in Corinthians and those in, Ephes in Ephesus and the Philippians as well, each time expressing who they are before God. A saint is one who is holy. 
an individual who has been called by God and set apart from sin. None of them is declared holy or a saint by his or her own work. Acts 4.12 makes it clear that none of us could make ourselves holy, but instead it is a work of Christ, that upon believing in his death, in his burial, and his resurrection, believing that that work indeed was sufficient to accomplish what we could not accomplish, then we can be declared a saint. That moment of belief institutes a great exchange in which the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us or ascribed to us, if you want to put it that way. So that when God looks upon us, he does not see our sinfulness, but Christ's holiness. It's as though Christ or as God is sitting in the judgment seat in a courtroom and he's about to pronounce judgment and Christ as the advocate, as the attorney is standing there defending us. And when he goes to pronounce judgment, when God goes to pronounce judgment, he's not looking at us, but rather Christ stands between us and God. And all God sees is Christ. This is a position of a saint before God, one who has been declared holy and justified, because of, not because of his or her own work, but because of Christ's work. It is in the description given to believers by Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.11. And we see that. And to understand that, I, I want to read some verses there from 1 Corinthians 6, beginning back in verse 9. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual or moral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11. And such were some of you and I. But you were washed, you were sanctified, made holy, made a saint. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Those who find themselves declared a saint have pledged themselves to Christ to be faithful to him. Becoming a saint before God it also installs that individual into the membership of the body of Christ. As believers in Christ, we have been included in this privileged group, one which is available to all, but only whose members are only those who have confessed their confidence in him. Genuine saints are set apart from the world, now living in a community, so that faithfulness of one individual has direct influence on the others in that community. To be a saint in God's call is to be part of the body of Christ. But not only does that saint refer to a title, not only does it establish one's position before God, but it also implies one's purpose before God. The description of holy is applied to Elisha in 2 Kings 4 and to entire people groups in Leviticus 4. Holiness is also ascribed to specific places. You see that all throughout the book of Exodus. Specifically includes buildings like the temple in Psalm 65.4. The term is even used sometimes to talk about objects, including items such as the priest garments, Exodus 28, or the oil for anointing in Exodus 30. The Bible attributes holiness to not just people, but also to places and things. So how is it then that inanimate objects that have no spirit could ever be considered holy? 
It must mean, then, that sainthood and holiness are not merely determined based on character or position, but based on their purpose given to them by God's will. Paul writes, For just as you were once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free to in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, holiness, sainthood, and its end, eternal life. Romans 6, 19 through 22. Those words from Romans 6 show that those who are in Christ have been set apart from sin and set free from sin. They are now sanctified, made holy to be slaves of God. And what for? We may ask ourselves, why would this even matter? Why do we want to be? But we learn from the psalmist in Psalm 16.3, David, that he declares that God delights in those who are holy. God is pleased by holiness. The call of Christian faithfulness is expressed by living out the call of Christian holiness. I do not think I'm out of line to say that faithfulness flows from holiness. Holiness demands a response, and it calls upon us to live out our faith and serve God. Thus, to be faithful to God is a result of our position and our purpose before God as saints who have been sanctified by Christ. I want you to take note of the character of faithfulness second. The character of faithfulness. Faithfulness is dependent upon the person expressing it. That is to say that who a person is determines the expression of their faithfulness. Who I am, who my character is, my faithfulness will reflect that. A prideful, arrogant person will demonstrate limited fidelity, if any at all, because that per- person is, has no concern for others or less concern for others, because that is overridden by the concern for self. But on the other side, a humble, a compassionate person will be more committed because he or she is more concerned about others. And we could go on and on and talk about different characteristics. My point is that it is an expression of who we are. But while faithfulness is an individual trait, it is also exercised corporately. As I've already alluded to, a person's faithfulness has implications for the body of Christ, for the entire church. The function of the body of Christ depends on the faithfulness of individuals. Notice that within the book of Colossians, Paul references several people, several individuals. And we see first, in verse 1-7, Epaphras. And Paul reminds the Colossians, You have learned this, the gospel, verses 4-6, through from Epaphras, our dearly loved servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. At this time, at the time of the writing, Epaphras is the leader of the church, and perhaps he may even have been the planter of the church at Colossae. We don't know. Paul regards Epaphras as faithful. He labors not just for himself, it says, but he labors on behalf of the church, and he does this in several ways. 
First, his love for God and faithfulness to Christ compel him to share the gospel. He didn't just talk about sharing the gospel or teach others to share the gospel. He actually shared it himself. He took the time to reach people and to teach people, desiring to see that others know God. And he begins to explain who God is and how to know him. Paul also refers to Epaphras as a fellow slave, indicating that he is serving not only on behalf of the church, but that he is serving with the church. To be faithful calls upon a believer to fulfill God's calling and utilize God's gifts in their lives. And that seems to be exactly what Epaphras is doing here. He's leading and teaching the church in Colossae. Notice, finally, one last way in which he expresses his faithfulness is by caring for the flock. To the point that as false teaching has entered the church, he goes all the way to Paul and finds him in his jail cell in order to talk about the situation and figure out how to handle it. He seeks to protect the church. And so Epaphras' faithfulness to God is expressed by his faithfulness to the church. As the letter finalizes, Paul then mentions two other individuals in chapter 4. Two other individuals that he also calls faithful, beginning with Tychicus in 4.7. He too is described as a dearly loved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow slave. He's from Asia Minor and we're first introduced to Tychicus in, in Acts uh, 20. And it is there that he expresses his faithfulness by fulfilling his calling and exercising his God-given gifts in Paul's ministry. It may have been very different than how Epaphras exercised his gifts, but they were both doing the same, doing what God had called them to do. One did so as a primary leader and teacher, but the other acts generally as more of an executive assistant to Paul. He serves God by serving Paul and serving the church. Both are living out faithfulness by being faithful to the body of Christ according to their call. And notice finally, if you jump down from 4.7 to 4.9, we have an Onesimus. Onesimus is a runaway slave, and he's the motivation for Paul's writing to the letter to Philemon. For running away as a slave, Onesimus is a felon. But somehow he's been connected with Paul and he's been converted. And now, even as a new believer, he has already been serving the body. His faithfulness is seen through his labor, to the point that in verse 11 of Philemon, Paul calls him useful. Each of these men is unique. They were unique, having been called to God in different ways and for a different purpose. And yet their individual duties fulfilled a specific part of God's plan for building up the church. And not just the church in Colossae, but had it not been for the way this happened, we would not have these two letters, Colossians and Philemon, for the building up of the church today. Individual faithfulness has bearing on the entire body of Christ. That truth is a reality for our church. From before the vote to call me and Bethany here, I have always expressed that my calling was to fulfill Colossians 1.28, something we'll get to later in probably a few months. And the building up of the body through that, to see people come and be inclined to Christ, to be made perfect, and to do this through preaching and discipleship. The only reason I can be faithful to that call 
is because of others faithfully fulfilling their roles. Just to pick on a few, if Olivia, who's doing all of the screen work that would take me time, Daryl, who not only teaches Sunday school, but then he takes care of a bunch of administrative duties that I don't know that how I would ever get done. You have people like Sherry who are taking care of physical things at the church. If it were not for them, I would not be able to prepare to teach or disciple or spend time with people. I can even take that a step further because I firmly believe that God provides specific people for specific times for specific purposes. Um, and I think scripture confirms that. The only reason that I'm able to step in and begin some of these very things that I shared about from the very beginning is because of the foundation that was set through the faithfulness of Pastor Everett and Gloria. That had it not been for their faithfulness for God's call, I would struggle to be faithful to God's call for me. It's as we've already stated. God has equipped every person to be part of the church. And for it to function at a full capacity, it requires the combined efforts of everyone, a willingness for everyone who is part of the church to be faithful to God's calling upon their individual lives. We cannot work independently of one another, but rather he has called us to function together to efficiently and effectively engage in his work. It is clear that individual faithfulness is expressed corporately. The question then is for each of us is whether or not we are helping or hindering God's work. Are we being faithful to God by being faithful to the church? Third, I want you to notice the condition of faithfulness. Paul writes to the saints and faithful brothers at Colossae in Christ. He says physically they are located or in Colossae. Our, our translations say at, but literally it means in. Physically, they're in Colossae. They are just 100 miles east of Ephesus. And as we've learned before, they're, they're right near Hierapolis and Laodicea. But more important than that physical position, that physical location, is their spiritual position, which is in Christ, it says in the text. To the saints in Christ at Colossae. Rarely is that phrase, in Christ, used outside of Paul's epistles. But Paul, you will find it in his letters 80 times over the course of his 13 letters. He does that to draw attention to the fact that the acceptance of the gospel unites us to the person of Christ. To be united with Christ is to be transformed by Christ. <coughs> Romans 3.22 asserts that the righteousness is only found by being in Christ, indicating that one's spiritual status is defined by whether or not they are indeed in Christ. One's relationship with Christ, one's dependence upon Christ, and one's faithfulness to Christ are a direct correlation of whether or not that person is submitted to the lordship of Christ. It stands to reason, then, to be in Christ, one must know who Christ is. And so it is no surprise to see that in just a few verses, a few verses later from our text in Colossians 1, Paul will give this amazing tutorial on who Christ is. Because who Christ is defines who we are and who we are in Christ. By noting that they are in Christ, Paul is noting that they are committed to him alone. They do not have a divided faith, as James would warn against, and they're willing to suffer for Christ's sake, as Peter discusses in his epistle. 
Indeed, they are faithful to Christ because they have submitted to Christ's lordship. We've looked over five individuals in verses 1 and 2, beginning with Paul and Timothy, today with Epaphras and Tychicus and Onesimus. And each one shares a common characteristic. They have submitted to Christ's lordship. Each one is completely and totally sold out to his work. Never does Paul say, you need to do this according to my will. In fact, it's astounding that over the course of all his pages and pages of writing, Paul only asserts God's will, saying, do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Complete the will of God. He doesn't even tell them to satisfy the desires of their own hearts, but to satisfy the desires of God. Most of us, myself included, are unable to utter a few sentences without highlighting ourselves, expressing our own desires, and even asserting our own wills. But to be in Christ is to submit to Christ's lordship. As it is written in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I lived by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Submission to the Lordship of Christ replaces self with Christ. And we see that in that verse, Galatians 2.20. And what happens is it melts away anger and resentment and selfishness and most importantly, pride. Later on in Galatians, we'll see that it's replaced by peace and patience and gentleness and kindness and so on. The result of a submission is both a love for Christ and a labor for Christ that is manifested by a faithfulness to Christ. The result is that we desire not what is best for us, but what is best for God and what is best for God's people. We put that into practice, our call and our gifts, not merely for our own blessing, but for glorifying God and benefiting others. I hope that you can see the connection I'm trying to make, that the condition of faithfulness is to be in Christ, so that the character of faithfulness that we just talked about in the last point is that we are individually faithful in the setting of the local church. When we are faithful, or we are faithful when we willingly submit to his authority. Whether a person believes it or not, Jesus Christ is Lord, and one day every knee will bow and confess it as such. But those who have called upon him as Lord for themselves in salvation, they are now asked to call upon him as Lord in all of life, and not salvation alone. We submit to him not merely for salvation or merely in salvation, but we submit to him in sanctification, meaning that we seek to place ourselves under the leadership and authority of Christ. It causes us to bring our will in alignment with his. Our emotions reflect his emotions, and our desires coincide with his desires. Submitting to him as, Lord, as the Lord replaces self with him. The condition of faithfulness is a condition of submission. Because if we are submitting to anything or anyone else, then we have pledged our allegiance or our faithfulness to that entity. And any action we take will flow from who we have given our allegiance to, which is often usually ourselves. Finally, I want you to note fourth, the confirmation of faithfulness. 
The faithfulness of the church is confirmed by the testimony of the church. And the church in Colossae maybe is known as a faithful church. And we see that by its ongoing testimony preserved in the word for us. Because we'll touch on these words in a few weeks. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this point. But we see before us a testimony. Because this testimony of the Colossian church has reached Paul. And he remarks about it in two positive attributes. Beginning in verse 4. He says first that they have a strong faith. But their faith, again, is not in anything. Specifically, it is in Christ. Clearly, they're struggling through some issues. For this reason, Paul writes, because he's noting that they are facing heresy, and they need encouragement to stand against it. But even still, they are noted for being faithful to him. (coughs) Second, Paul notes that he has heard of their love for one another. If faithfulness is expressed corporately, then it should be expressed through love for one another within the body of Christ. And that is is exactly what this church is doing in this text. They're living out their faith by loving one another. The church is simply conducting themselves in light of the gospel that they heard from Epaphras. This is faithfulness. Simply responding to the gospel in attitude and action. Living out what one believes about Jesus Christ. So we could ask, what is our testimony individually and corporately before those around us? If we asked others, what would they say? Do we indeed give confirmation of our faithfulness? I want to close with an example. As we've, and I'm going to be cautious because of the recording. I don't want this to go online. In the last few weeks, we've talked about Afghanistan. Most of us have watched the news. We've had some friends involved in different rescue efforts there. Um, And I'm not going to give details because of the recording. If you want more, come talk to me later. Um, But I'll share just the general story, that as that happened, we saw what took place. Most of us watched it on the news. But it goes back further. There was a man that was converted in Russia. He was an Afghani. He'd been in Russia. I don't know why. I don't know how. But he came to Christ there through the work of some missionaries. And then what he did is turned around and went right back to Afghanistan to start preaching the gospel and start a church after he'd gotten some training. This man knew that by going back, especially at that time, his life would be in danger, but he still chose to go back to his own people. My understanding is that earlier this year, as things opened up in Afghanistan, some pastors began to put their name on a list uh, as they were allowed to do because Christianity became more permissible. And those pastors did so, identifying themselves as a pastor for Christ, a pastor for Christianity, in the hopes that they could leave a legacy for their children. Obviously, we now know what happened to that, and we suspect, or we we know that that list is being used to target people, this man included. But he did try to lead a group out to try to get these people who were being persecuted for their faith, or were going to be persecuted for their faith, out. This group of 50 aged from three months old to age 72. Some of them had already been marked. They were pastors that were named. um, So they knew their lives were in danger. And over the course of several days, as they tried to get in, some things happened. Things broke down, as they often do with government, and they weren't able to board any flights. Eventually, some phone calls were made, some of those phone calls to the United States. And eventually what happened is they were evacuated. 
this man had some contacts who called somebody in the States. And over the course of three or four days, that person was able to call and make contacts and figure out how to get them out of the country. And indeed, they were evacuated a few days later. Why do I share that? Because it's an example of individual faithfulness for the benefit of the church. Perhaps it's an extreme example, but it is an example. First, you have this man who was unconcerned about his own well-being, who went back to his own country and served faithfully by returning to the very people who could kill him for his faith. But second, you have this litany of individuals in this story who simply used their rules, used their resources to the point of even using cell phones across the world, and then ultimately their gifts to literally save the lives of families. This is the uniqueness of the God's institution of the church. For the body of Christ to function fully, it depends on the people using their calling and their gifts, not just individually, but corporately. Our church may not be able to accomplish what the church down the road may be able to accomplish. But I would say the church down the road probably can't accomplish some of the things we are able to. I do know that God has given us the tools and resources to achieve whatever it is he has called us to achieve for his glory but it calls upon us to use his resources as he designed them and as he intended them. That means each of us serving faithfully by using our gifts faithfully and living out our calling faithfully, not merely individually, but in the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we're grateful for this unique plan, this unique design, the institution of the church as we look at it, we recognize there is nothing like it in the world. And it's made even more distinct by your presence, by your authority, Lord. Father, we give you great praise that you have called us to be part of the church. First, that you've just called us into salvation. And that in, in justifying us, you brought us to be part of the global body of Christ. But we also give you praise that you've called us to be part of an individual or local church. The local body, Lord. Father, that we can encourage and edify one another, that we can pour into the lives of each other and have others pour into our lives, Lord. Father, may we be a church that is faithful. May we be found faithful in your eyes. May we be faithful to your word, your truth, your call, your Christ. And Father, may we not do this just individually. May our lives reflect that, but may it also be a reflection of the church and may it impact the church. May we be able to serve you by serving one another. May we be able to serve you by serving the community together. May we just serve you wherever you have called us. So, Father, we give you praise. We thank you for the example of the Church of Colossae this morning. We commit this time to you, asking that you just continue a work in our hearts as we leave from these doors. Lord, reveal yourself to us in this way. Help touch us, help incline us and help us to be motivated to be faithful to you. May we come under the submission of your lordship. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.